welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. We're a brand new podcast on the Nerd Party Network. I'm Asia Bonilla, and I'm here with my co-host, Charles Sheeland. Hi, everyone. So we decided to go ahead and record the first three episodes so that we'll have the entirety of The Lightning Thief to get our podcast started and give you all a better idea of how this will work. So we're already back with the next chunk of chapters, chapters 9 through 15, and Charles is going to go ahead and give us the summary. Yep. Um, As per the way we decided we were going to do this, the person who's new to the book is going to give the summary. So while we're in Lightning Thief territory, I'll be giving the summary. So for chapters 9 through 15, we left off with Poseidon claiming Percy as his son. So Percy gets moved to cabin 3 where he's alone and very isolated. He has a dream about two men fighting and then immediately is summoned to meet with Chiron and the Oracle at which point he's given the quest to recover Zeus's lightning bolt. Next chapter, they set out on their quest, they being Annabeth, Grover, and Percy. And then on a bus leaving the Lincoln Tunnel, they are attacked by all three Furies, but they manage to escape, losing all of their supplies. In chapter 11, they find their way to a diner with a bunch of statues, and the owner, Auntie M, turns out to be Medusa, trying to capture them. And but they managed to defeat her too. Chapter twelve, they keep traveling west, and in chapter thirteen, they stop at the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, and then they're attacked by Echidna and the Chimera, and Percy flings himself off of the arch. In fourteen, Percy is spoken to by a water spirit, telling him to meet his dad in Santa Monica, and finally in chapter fifteen, they make it to Denver, so they're almost to Las Vegas, where. They're supposed to go for their quest, but Ares shows up and he forces them to go get his shield out of a water park, during which time they're attacked by Hephaestus' trap, which he'd laid for Ares. But they manage to overcome that too when they have the shield. And I'll get right into my first impressions of the reading. And that was mostly that there was a lot of action. It was attack after attack and challenge after challenge in very quick succession. And I think that speaks to the book being geared towards a younger audience. It's fun, it's plot-driven, but I was reading it and I was incredibly tired just thinking about all the things they were going through. But, Asia, what about your first impressions? So I agree with you. There was definitely a lot of action, especially compared to the first eight chapters. And I know for this section, the only scene I really remembered clearly was the scene with Medusa. I remember that. Very specifically, especially with, uh, I also remember the movie adaptation, even though it's pretty terrible, but I remember that I have a clear scene in my head. Um, But other than that, I didn't remember any other specific details from these sections. Uh, I was really just thinking about how they were going to get across the country with uh, only $100 this is something I feel like I've noticed more with reading these books over is I've been focusing more on the practicality of it and the believability in things that I feel like I wouldn't have thought about as much as a kid. Like every time they fought monsters in front of humans, like how did they uh, not see anything? Like I was just way more interested in the explanation and everything. 
Yeah, that did strike me as funny. They were supposed to leave the far end of Long Island and get to Nevada with $100 for three people. Like, that's pretty unrealistic. Inflation is strong, but it's not that strong. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that that's maybe a plot hole, but either way, they lose the money immediately, so who cares? And I know we have a lot of other things to talk about, but I wanted to start with the echidna. I think it's pronounced echidna. It might be pronounced echidna, but Asia, do you know what an echidna is? I have no idea. I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, so I have known this word for many years. It's a type of mammal. And I was super confused when they referred to it as an anteater because from my recollection, an echidna is about the size of a hamster. And when I think of an anteater, I think of like a huge animal with a long trunk. Turns out, but I looked it up, because when they get attacked by the echidna, Percy is like, that's the name of an anteater. And the echidna is super offended by that. And I looked it up. Echidnas are, in fact, the size of a hamster, and they are anteaters, so both are correct. But what's distinguishing for them, and the thing that I remembered, is that they are only one of two types of mammals which lay eggs. <laughs> Random facts with Charles. You just knew that? I just knew that. Echidnas, there are four living species of echidnas, and platypi, there's one living species of a platypus, those are the two types of mammals that lay eggs. And that's how I knew that, because it was a egg-laying mammal. So I was super confused. <laughs> Turns out that an echidna is an anteater that is also an egg-laying mammal. I love how you just got sidetracked by all of that, whereas I was just like, how is he going to fight these monsters in front of all the witnesses? <laughs> yeah, that mist must be really strong. Yes. The mist that they talk about, it's got to be really powerful. It, it must be really powerful. But moving on, uh, the first thing that I was really excited about was we learned about why it doesn't rain at Camp Half-Blood in the beginning of Chapter 9. And Grover explains to Percy that it doesn't rain in Camp Half-Blood unless they wanted to. And Percy even thinks about his whole time that he's been there, it's never even been overcast. However, with once we find out that the lightning bolt has been stolen, and because Zeus thinks Percy stole it and he's the thief, Zeus makes it rain at Camp Half-Blood, and that's a really big deal. Yeah, I, as soon as we started reading, I was thinking about our last episode, how you mentioned that the lunch or the eating area was exposed, and you thought that was really strange, the way Chiron responded, and I totally glazed, glossed over it. I hadn't even noticed it, but I was looking for it when we were reading this time, and I was super excited because it was right there, and you guys know, and you know, Asia, that I love world-building I love that there's that little explanation. Just gives it another level of complexity. I think we should really get into the prophecy because that's basically the rest of the plot. So I've got it all here. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to say something. I have some thoughts. I want to hear yours. But to review, especially for those of us who are not rereading with us, the prophecy is four lines. You shall go west and face the God who has turned. You shall find what was stolen and see it safely returned. You shall be betrayed by one who calls you a friend, and you shall fail to save what matters most in the end. Wow, I'm a poet. Anyway, the, I think line by line, you shall go west and face the God who has turned. You shall go west is pretty unambiguous. Face the God who has turned. I mean, we're led to believe it's Hades, but we're also led to believe that there's something wrong. 
So maybe there's another god who has turned, and I think we'll get into that a little more. And you shall find what was stolen, see it safely returned. So I do think that Percy will succeed in stealing the lightning bolt from whoever has it. Or, yeah, from whoever have it, has it. Because the book is called The Lightning Thief. And so I do think that that part, that line is indicate, indicative of that. You shall be betrayed by one who calls you a friend. This is pretty obvious, and I'm sure we're going to talk more about this, that there's a traitor, and we get told later on that there's a spy in Camp Half-Blood, and you shall save to f- you shall fail to save what matters most in the end. That made me think that he's going to fail to save his mom because he, there have been strong indicators that he wants to save his mom. But Asia, why don't you tell me what you thought? So I also broke down the prophecy line by line. And so the first line, you shall go west and face the God who has turned. I also connected that to at the beginning of chapter nine, Percy has a dream. I think he calls it his worst dream. And it's about he knows he's in a city, but it's not New York. And things are the buildings are more spread apart. They describes palm trees. So me coming from California, I'm sitting there talking about Los Angeles and it's Basically, Zeus and Poseidon are fighting it out. And so I believe the dream and this line of the prophecy refers to he has to go to Los Angeles for some reason and face the god who has turned. Like you said, I would assume that's Hades. He seems to really be the main bad god. And then you shall find what was stolen and see it safely returned. Obviously, I would assume the lightning bolt, like you said. And then the third line, you shall be betrayed by one who calls you a friend. I'm assuming this refers to Annabeth or Luke or a different year-rounder at the camp because something that I believe Annabeth mentioned in the earlier chapters was that, so the lightning bolt was stolen on the winter solstice and she mentions that her, Luke, and Clarice and some of the other year-rounders at the camp were there. So they're all suspects. They could have easily stolen it. So I think that I would rule out Clarice because she's obviously not Percy's friend. So, but I think that at this point, Annabeth or Luke or maybe somebody we haven't met yet is probably the person who's going to portray him and could also possibly be the lightning thief. And for the last line, and you shall fail to say what matters most in the end, I also agree with you, Charles, that I do think that it's probably about his mom because I think that Percy ultimately what matters most to him is saving his mom like obviously he's doing this quest to find the lightning bolt and clear his name but that's ultimately what's most important to him so he could fail yeah i one of my thoughts was that it was grover was going to be the betrayer i like that your logic that um and i do think that because we were told the vault was stolen at the winter solstice and we know that grover wasn't there for that you're probably right that a year rounder is the suspect or it should be a suspect And I think we should talk a little bit about the spy because we know that something is going on at Camp Half-Blood and the fact that the storm is even happening is an indicator that there's something wrong happening. So we should definitely talk about that. I, I thought it might be Grover, but the more we read on, the less likely I think that it's going to be Grover because much of the way you said that Percy's main goal is to save his mom, Grover's main goal is to receive his searcher's license. And I don't think that causing a war between the gods would particularly endear him to them. So I don't see how he has anything to gain. Do you have any predictions on who Hades' spy at Camp Half-Blood is? 
Well, I I definitely have my predictions and I also know like part of the ending, so I don't want to say any spoilers, but I know for one, a particular suspect I have is Luke, which I'll also talk about later in like chapters 14 and 15. I think there's some really shady stuff with him, but what do you think? What is Who would you say if you had to pick one person? That's who I have in my list as well. And I also am going to save some of my reasoning until we get a little further on. Number one, and this goes back to last episode of us talking about how Hermes is the god of thieves and Luke is Hermes' son, the lightning thief. Someone stole the lightning bolt. And I agree that it can't be Clarice because she's not a friend to Percy. And I don't think, especially because we're already two thirds of the way through the book, I don't think they would introduce there another that another character at Camp Half-Blood would be introduced retroactively. It's not particularly good writing to have a plot twist at the end where it's a character that none of us knew. And it wouldn't really be a betrayal if it's not someone yeah. that Percy's, Percy is friends with. So it has to be someone we know. And again, much like we've already talked about monolithic personalities, Annabeth wants to prove herself and she wants to go out into the world and she wants to succeed on her quest, I don't think that she would be swayed from that. But, so, I also suspect Luke, and I think that we probably are going to have a lot more to say about him as we go on. I was just going to add something about, because how this whole idea of Hades' spy, I was thinking about another dream Percy has in chapter 12. He has a dream where this voice like coming he's in the underworld and this dark voice is calling up to him and it's obviously we're assuming this is Hades voice calling to him and it kind of for me at least what I got from it is that maybe Hades wants to barter Percy's mom's life for this lightning thief and maybe Hades doesn't actually have the lightning bolt or he didn't actually get somebody to steal it and he really thinks Percy has it which also references when the, they fight the Furies on the bus. The Furies, or Annabeth and Grover tell Percy afterwards how the Furies were like, where is it, where? Like as if they were looking for an object on them. So from that, it kind of seems like maybe Hades is trying to get the lightning bolt from Percy and he really believes he has it. So I just think that's an interesting thing where like if Hades has a spy maybe the spy is kind of like a double agent and isn't doing necessarily everything Hades wants. So I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, and we've definitely been given some indications. Both Percy and Grover have sort of said lines where something in the mission doesn't compute. For example, the where is it, it not him, because Percy was invisible because he was wearing the cap. If they were looking for Percy, they would have said, where is he or where, where is Percy? Yeah, exactly. But where is it? indicates that there's probably something wrong with what we've been led to believe is the prophecy. And one, anyone who's read any fantasy knows that prophecy is always an icky subject. It's never exactly what you think it is. And Chiron literally tells Percy, he's like, I know that you're not telling me everything that the Oracle said. Not all prophecy works out the way we think it does. So I'm very much prepared for a plot twist. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I want to track something that Asia brought up. You brought up actually last week or last episode, I should say, about the hero's trait, how Percy is an archetypal literary hero where he has 
sort of hero qualities that are probably a little unearned. You know, he turns out to be really good at sword fighting. And we just assume that because he's our protagonist and he's a good kid, that of course he would be that way. And when Percy's given the prophecy, at first he's a little overwhelmed, but when he gets told what the circumstances and the stakes are, he's not actually scared. It specifically says Percy's not filled with fear. He's filled with anticipation. He's excited to prove himself to his dad. He's excited to prove himself to everybody. And I felt like that was a big hero thing for Percy to a little bit have unearned confidence and to be ready Mm -hmm. to face this problem head on with almost excitement. Yeah. Okay, so I'm since you're tracking something that I did, I'm going to track something that you did last time, which was the world building. And I made sure to take specific notes on things that explained. So first I have in chapter nine, we learn that gods can't enter each other's territories except by invitation. But heroes or demigods, can go wherever they want, which is why gods often use humans to do things, and it's why Percy is being accused of stealing the lightning bolt because he's the only person who could have went, like, without having to get uh, permission. We also learn that the underworld is in Los Angeles. That is confirmed in Chapter 9. And then in Chapter 10, we also learn that celestial weapons which is um like riptide the pen slash sword percy has it cannot kill mortals but demigods can be killed by celestial or like normal human weapons we also learn that percy cannot lose riptide the pen sword if he throws it or drops it it will reappear in his pocket in pen form then we learn that the mist is what's some the explanation basically for why humans can't see the monsters or gods for what they really are it's not super explained in depth yet but basically it's just saying that whatever the humans see they're able to explain it to themselves so that it's not so that they're not obviously seeing monsters we also learn that monsters can trace cell phones which is why percy um Annabeth and Grover don't bring any sort of phone with them. Grover explains to Percy how satyrs can read emotions, which I thought was interesting, which is why he seems to always be like, he knows what's going on in Percy's head. And I think the last thing is iris messaging, which I'll get more into that when we get farther into this, when we talk more about chapter 15. Yeah, I think I misspoke earlier. I think I said that the Underworld entrance was in Las Vegas, but it's definitely in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, And that makes more sense because they're going to Santa Monica, which is an area in... uh, That's where they have to go to meet up with Poseidon. So that would make more sense. It wouldn't make any sense for them to go all the way to California (laughs) to backtrack to Nevada. Anyway, my mistake. It's definitely in Los Angeles. And something that's kind of world building, kind of retroactive exposition kind of that I'm sure we want to talk about is smelly Gabe. Oh yeah. How Percy's mom marries this terrible guy and Percy actively wonders why she would marry him. And Grover explains that he smells so mortal and so human and that's what deflects the gods. I think that's really clever world building and goes into what, the one you mentioned about how mortals have certain exceptions because they're not 
trackable by gods and they don't need invitations to enter places and ties into how Gabe, you know, we see him drinking, we see him gambling, we see him being misogynistic, all of the worst base tendencies of humanity. And we see the underworld is in LA, not to shame Southern California, but some of those more base tendencies might be stereotyped to LA. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's just a bit of clever continuity world building that I appreciated. And it, it makes more sense because Percy's mom does seem to sort of be infallible. So it doesn't make any sense that she would make this terrible mistake of marrying a terrible guy. But the fact that she was doing it to save Percy makes much more sense. I want to talk about something that is another form of world building. And we were talking a little about it last episode too, about how characters, the children of the parents of the gods, so the demigods, they're going to carry certain characteristics of their parents You know, we talked about how Annabeth is very smart, wise, she's clever, and she brags about being smart and wise, and that's because she's Athena's daughter. And in this chunk of chapters, she's rather hostile towards Percy, which I didn't actually think she was in the first chunk of chapters. I thought there was a bit of a switch, but she says that she can't like Percy because their parents don't get along, and then... Percy's way of getting through to her is to ask her to find an example of when her parent, their parents did get along. And then Annabeth is much nicer to him. And I think that goes to what we're talking about um, with the children sort of one track mind reciprocating or repeating what their parents say. And yeah, I thought I just noticed it, wanted to check it. Yes. So I also wanted to ask you, did you figure out that Auntie M was Medusa? Did you see that coming? I did. I did. One, because I kind of read Auntie M. Clearly the EM stands for something. And then also it was incredibly creepy with the stone statues. It reminded me a lot of the Chronicles of Narnia in the second book in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when they go to liberate the um, Jadis, the Ice Witch's palace she also freezes animals into statues of stone. Specifically, she actually freezes Mr. Tumnus, who's a fawn, and Grover is a satyr, which is pretty close to a fawn, if not the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about his seeing his uncle or someone who looks like his uncle. So I was pretty sure it was Medusa because she is, you know, the Greek mythological character who freezes people into stone. So I actually did have it. I was, I was there. I was with Annabeth, like, Percy, we need to go. And Percy's, you know, asleep. (laughs) He's just enjoying all the food, not thinking about anything else. I mean, I can't blame him, except, like, I can because I figured it out. Speaking of which, did you figure out when they were in St. Louis and they were at the Gateway Arch, when did you figure out that something was going wrong with the Echidna and the Chimera? I mean, as soon as... I already was, like, figuring something bad was going to happen. The fact that they were isolated with this weird lady and her dog. Um, But for sure, obviously, when Percy notices that the lady has a forked tongue. And I just thought that, like, the writing style of that was just really interesting. It reminded me of watching, like, a comedy, like a movie. Because he was like, wait a minute, forked tongue? Like, as if he noticed it and then he had moved on but then went back to it. And I I don't know. I just enjoyed it and... 
that was just an interesting way I think of writing. Yeah, I clocked it pretty early because they get into the confined space waiting to get into the tram that goes up and Percy asks Grover if he can smell any monsters and Percy's like we're on un- and Grover is like we're underground everything smells like monsters so we're fine and I was like nope they're not fine there's a monster I can tell mm-hmm. there's something wrong and there's something in I can't remember the exact pronouns she used but the Echidna refers to oh no she refers to the dog as Sunny as if it was her son which is weird. So I was I was right like two lines before the forked tongue. I was like, ah, something's going to go wrong. And lo and behold, it did. Okay, so now let's break down chapters 14 and 15, especially because I have a lot of things to say and feel free to jump in when you want to. First, uh, when Percy flings himself off the arch and goes into the water... Poseidon saves Percy, we're assuming, by making him breathe underwater and everything he touches while underwater stays dry. Like, he's dry and if he touches something, it'll also get dry. I was just wondering, and we'll obviously learn this later on, is this going to be a permanent ability Percy has? Like, is this something, a new ability he's obtained or is it just because Poseidon was, like, helping him in that moment? Do you have any opinions on that? I don't... No, I'm going to assume that it's probably a permanent ability along with the water healing. I could be completely wrong, but I mean, when he activates the toilets in the earlier chapters, he doesn't get wet. And that could be because he like directed the water of the toilet such that it didn't hit him. But more realistically, it makes sense that he just stayed dry. And I'm sure that we'll figure that out. Maybe it was Poseidon actively saving him. But I feel more inclined to believe that it's a permanent ability. It's sort of Game of Thrones. If you read Game of Thrones, the books, at the end of the first book, Daenerys goes into a funeral pit. And there's a lot of questions of whether or not she's actually immune to fire. And she survives. And there's a question of like whether she's actually immune to fire or whether she because she was burning a bunch of people in this fire, whether she was actually stealing their magic just for this one time. Like, how immune is she to fire? That's exactly what I thought of when this happened. Uh, And the jury's still out because those books haven't all been published. Uh, But I think I'm going to lean towards this is probably a permanent power of Percy's. Because what's the point of being a big three child if you don't get a lot of extra powers? Yeah, I get that. I I agree. And then, so while he's down there, he gets a message from a woman and she tells him that he has to go to Santa Monica before going into the underworld and to not trust gifts, which I didn't see any connection to this at first, but I thought it was an interesting warning. Do you have anything to say? Yeah, I do, but I'm going to save it for a little later on. But I clocked that too. Okay. And then I personally think, because Percy drops Riptide in, like, the hole of the arch, and he's like, it's not coming back. Like, he looks in his pocket, it doesn't reappear. And I think that that didn't happen in this specific instance because Poseidon wanted him to jump into the water so he could get the message and be able to heal. So I think that's why it didn't return. Like, that would be my theory for why in this one instance 
Riptide didn't just reappear like it's supposed to. Yeah, I I think that it probably, like, if Percy hadn't flung himself out, I'm sure that it would have appeared in his jacket again. But I agree that it probably, or I like that logic that Poseidon almost withheld Riptide to force Percy to go down so that he would have that conversation. I think that's a clever bit of postulation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're getting into the iris messaging, which is basically they give one drachma coin and they have to have like, uh, they have to create a rainbow. So they go to a car wash and spray the water and they're calling to Camp Half-Blood. And this is where we get all the sus stuff about Luke because for one, Luke answers the call. He's standing with his sword out on the porch of the big house. One, why is he even at the big house? Like, where's Chiron? Like, why is where's he Mr. There? D? Where's Mr. Mr. D, D had an emergency meeting, but he should be back by now. Like, where are the heads of the camp? So that's already weird. But also, why does he have a weapon out? Like, I feel like from what we read so far, I feel like the campers only have weapons out, like either when they're training or during like capture the flag. Like, why does he just have his weapon out at the front of the camp? Like, I to me, that was really suspicious. So Percy goes ahead and tells him pretty much everything that they've gone through. And Lucy, Lucy, I don't know where that came from. Luke (laughs) says Hades could have taken it, um, could have taken the lightning bolt. And he also confirms that he was at um, Olympus on winter solstice with some of the other year rounders. But then he says the thief would have would have to be invisible, which could point to Annabeth because she has her Yankee hat that makes her invisible. Which I thought was kind of weird because, okay, maybe Annabeth is kind of suspicious, but also, like, why did Luke make a suggestion like that? Like, I know it was kind of an accident based on the reading, but, like, I don't know. If I was smart, I'd make sure that I was pointing the blame towards somebody else if I was actually the thief. But then he goes on to ask Percy about the flying shoes he gave him, and Percy lies that he's been wearing them just to not hurt his feelings and stuff. And it just seems like Luke really wants him to wear them, which, okay, I guess he gave him a gift. Um, And then the last thing Luke says to him before they hang up is take care of yourself in Denver. And because based on how it's written, Percy just like it just says Percy tells him everything like it doesn't say what he says. I'm just so curious if Percy said they were in Denver. Otherwise, like, how would he know that? I guess you could just assume that he said it. But I don't know. Luke just to me seems like a really sus character at this point. But, Charles, what do you think about it? I'm with you. I thought the call was suspicious. I definitely thought it was strange that the sword was out, all that thing we already talked about. And this podcast is just going to be me comparing pieces of writing to other pieces of writing and creating illusions. But it, we, you know, as we've also established, I love Harry Potter. And we have... In Harry Potter, we have magical methods of communication using the flu network and people on one end of magical communication not always being truthful. Check Harry Potter book five. And that was immediately when they told Percy that they were going to use this method of reaching Camp Half-Blood. I was already suspicious that... And once Luke and not Chiron answered, I was like, hmm, something's going to go wrong. I totally thought that the Annabeth thing was intentional. 
I agree that when it was written, the way it was written, there was kind of the chance. But Luke is very smart. He's older than everyone else. And I think that he could easily put Mm -hmm. that seed of possibly it was Annabeth, but in an innocuous way. Right. You know, he pauses. He's like, oh, I'm sure I didn't mean Annabeth. You know that. But I I think that was definitely misdirection. And then I want to talk about the shoes because Luke is so intent on Percy Mm -hmm. wearing the shoes and Percy never wears them. He gives them to Grover immediately and Percy lying about it. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a little bit of hero's instinct. Maybe he doesn't trust Luke the way and like I don't either, but Luke really wants Percy wearing those shoes. And I do think that there's a chance that the shoes could be used against him. If you, if they can fly, they can probably use be used to control you or take you somewhere. So if anything, it's going to end up harming Grover. And we've already said that he does that Percy feels friendly with Luke. So in terms of people that Percy is friendly with, it's Annabeth, Ish, Grover, Luke, and his mom. Those are the only people, and maybe Chiron, maybe, but those are the only people that he feels friendly with. I feel like it's it just points to Luke. And again, we know that Hermes is the god of thieves. There's an indicator that something is wrong. We also already know that Luke has thievish tendencies. Mm-hmm. And most importantly about the shoes, the water spirit, as she is dissolving, tells Percy not to trust the gifts. Now, we know that Annabeth's hat works because we've seen her use it. We've seen Percy use it. And again, Annabeth, as a character, has absolutely no reason to be duplicitous. Yeah. But Luke gives Percy this gift of the shoes, and he's very intent on Percy using the gift of the shoes. Makes me trust the shoes not one bit. Wow, yeah. I didn't I didn't even connect the fact that there was the warning about the gifts and how Luke's the shoes were a gift to Percy. So that's a really good point. Yeah, so next, let's go ahead and talk about snakes with Medusa and everything, because Charles, I know you really hate snakes. You're very afraid. So how did that scene make you feel? Yeah, we're going to get payback. Um, This is a little get-to-know-the-host segment, because I absolutely hate snakes, and I cannot stand them. Okay, well, snakes are scary. Which I think is a little irrational, but... (laughs) Then, as soon as we got to Auntie M's and I was like, this is Medusa, I was like, there are going to be snakes. I was on edge the whole chapter. I was like, there are going to be snakes, at least on her head, if not everywhere else. I was terrified. As soon as they started describing her hair being snake-like, I had to breeze through the rest of that chapter because I really, really hate snakes. But I have payback because the way I feel about snakes is the way Asia feels about spiders. Tell me about the spiders, Asia. That, yeah. I I did not remember the scene at all, so I was definitely taken by surprise. But even though they, like, what they were described as, it was more like they were robotic and clearly made of metal, I think I would have reacted just like Annabeth did because just the sight of all the creepy crawly things and the fact that there were so many of them, like, uh, there's no way. That was way too terrifying. I would not want to be there. Did you notice anything about Annabeth and her reaction? Uh, Not anything specific. What are you thinking of? She, like, completely loses her cool. And Annabeth is pretty focused most of the time. 
Yeah. And she takes control of situations, even when she's scared. She, from the moment the spiders show up, she is just screaming. Bloody murder. Screaming. And I was thinking, and I double-checked, I looked it up, but I double-checked, Annabeth is going to hate spiders because her mom is Athena, and Athena and Arachne were... Arachne was... This is a Greek myth. Arachne was a mortal woman, and she said that she could weave anything as good or as beautiful as the gods. She wove, I think it was a carpet or a tapestry, and to compete with Athena, and Athena couldn't find any flaws in it. And out of revenge, Athena turned Arachne into the first spider, which is why... Oh, gosh. Terrible. <laughs> it's part of Greek, um, ancient Greek mythology. Terrible idea. <laughs> Terrible idea. It's part of their world creation. That That's why spiders <laughs> leave silk. That's why they weave nets. Because Arachne was the first spider, and she was a wonderful weaver. It's also why that group of, I mean, the Greek root for spider is arachnid. We still use that term today. But I was wondering if because of Athena's hatred of spiders and hatred of arachne, Annabeth like just completely lost her cool. I hope we get some fulfillment on this. I hope that they talk about it further down. Because if you want to go back and reread just chapter 15, once they get into the water park, once the spiders start appearing, Annabeth is useless completely useless that would be me yeah so she's kind of like asia creates the first spider completely irrational because of it the usual but it was something that i noticed and i hope that we get an explicit verification of that just a little bit of that fruition yeah i i i hope so but i hope it doesn't involve any more spiders (laughs) oh i as long as there are no snakes i'm good as long as there are no snakes. <laughs> We're going to have this problem, though, because a lot of fantasy and young adult books are fantasy. And I do feel like snakes and spiders are frequently in it. And we're going to have this this back and forth. And I'm going to be right. But it's, it's going to be scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're going to finish the book in the next episode. Like Asia said at the beginning... We actually decided to release all three episodes for The Lightning Thief to give listeners a chance to get to know us, a vibe of how the podcast is going to work. So we have one more reading, but that episode is actually already posted as well. Any final thoughts before we finish this book, Asia? Just, I, I think this at this point, there are lots of clues that point to who The Lightning Thief is. And I do remember who it is, so I'm not trying to spoil anything, but I am very much looking forward to that reveal. But I'm also just really curious if Percy is going to be able to get his mother back from the underworld because I know that's what's most important to him. So it'll be really nice to see if that's going to pan out. Yeah. I expect that the fail to save what matters most, I expect that whatever, that will probably come to fruition within this book. It might be about his mom, but he de- we do have four more books. Maybe he will manage to save her at some point. Maybe he doesn't this time. Maybe it's a bartering situation with Hades, like you mentioned. I'm sure we'll find out. But I hope we get a resolution of this prophecy in the next seven Mm -hmm. chapters. Because I don't like prophecy when you're reading it. Because you're always looking around the corner. You're always looking for a plot twist. And we already have a bunch coming up, I'm sure. 
So prophecy always, ugh, and it makes characters irrational. And I'm sure we'll get into that over all of the books we're going to read in this pod. But I think that's probably it for this episode. The final chunk of chapters, chapters 16 through 22. Like I said, that episode is actually already available because we later on decided to do all three. And if you subscribe to our feed, you should see all three of these episodes as well as next week when we drop our next episode. So in a week, we'll be already reading the second book in the series, Percy Jackson and the Sea of Monsters, I believe. We'll be reading chapters one through seven. So if you're reading along, we'll be covering those. This book will will also divide Sea of Monsters into three. As we get into a vibe and as we can tell how listeners are keeping up with the reading, maybe we'll start reading a little more. This book's a little shorter, so we're going to try to do three segments, but we'll see how quickly people want to get through them. But for next week, we'll be reading chapters one through seven. In the meantime, stay in touch with us on the Nerd Party website. Just head over to the nerdparty.com slash contact, select throwback paperback. There you can send an email to us. We'll both get it. And you can get in touch with the network on Twitter at join nerd party or on Instagram at the nerd party. You can also check out all the other incredible shows. I can be found on Instagram and Twitter at C.E. Sheeland. And you guys can find me at Asia Bonilla on Twitter and Asia.Bonilla on Instagram. And remember that we're a new podcast, so make sure that if you enjoyed this, that you rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. And of course, check out the other podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you right away in the final episode of The Lightning Thief and next week in the first episode of For the Sea of Monsters. Bye, everybody. Bye. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.